My name is Kent, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I love to teach, but sometimes after certain children's sermons, I think the sermon's been given already, so thank you, Ben. That was great. Um, but I, I got one, so we're going to go, you're going to have to hear it. Um, we're, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We've made our way up to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, so I'd like to invite you to follow along with me while I read that. Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 19. You can grab a, a Bible out of the chair or open up your phone or whatever device you read on. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. I'm wondering if anyone here um, watched a football game last Sunday night? Did anybody here turn it off after the third quarter? I was so close to that. I had been, you know, wanting to watch Pride and Prejudice with Mary, so I just about turned it off, but I hung in there and saw an amazing fourth quarter. I also saw two very curious things right after the game was over. So James White dives into the end zone, gets the final touchdown, and the confetti gets shot up in the air and the camera sweeps around the crowd. The players rush the field. They show the owners in the owner's booth. And the next thing they showed was Tom Brady's wife. And she was in her box with her cell phone doing one of these, like, recording everything. And then right when the camera went on her, she went like this and turned the camera on herself. And it was only a couple seconds, but when I saw that, I thought, man, that is odd. It's just a curious thing. And I made a judgment, and I, I don't know Tom Brady's wife, but I thought, there is a person who really likes to see herself. That's what I thought. Second curiosity I saw was when they were bringing out the trophy, the Vince Lombardi trophy, and for some reason, they had to walk this thing from a great distance. Does anybody remember seeing this thing? And they, they took it through this crowd, this line of players, and then they started to kiss that trophy. And one after another, and it seemed like this took forever for him to get this trophy walked across the field. And these guys, one after another, would kiss the trophy. And after about the 15th or 20th guy kissed this trophy, I started to think, that is really odd. That just starts to look really weird. And I made another judgment, I'll admit. I don't know the players on the Patriots, but I made this judgment. I thought, those guys are kissing an idol. That's what I thought. Now, I don't know if this is actually the case, but I'm guessing that the utmost desire for some of those players on that team, the desire of their heart was to win that trophy, to get to the Super Bowl and win it. And for some of them, their utmost desire was to win it again, right? This is something that they've lived for. They kissed the trophy before they kissed their wives, before they hugged their kids, before they gave thanks to God for what had happened. Here's, here's the definition of an idol. When our hearts 
greatest desire is for something other than God. If we desire something more than God, then that's an idol. And if every idol, I think, were as obvious as the trophy, I think maybe we would not fall for this. But uh, idols can be a really subtle thing. Uh, The way that our heart's desires get turned to various treasures is a very subtle thing. Now, there's some very famous passages in the Scripture about kissing idols. And the the one that I thought of first was in Daniel chapter 3. You remember what happens there? Three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are uh, with the people of Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar has built this golden statue. And the decree, the law of the land, was that when the music starts to play and the confetti shoots out of the cannons, then you have to bow down to the golden idol. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar got word that these three men did not bow down, which made him furious. They weren't playing by his rules. So he calls them forward to kind of verify this outrageous behavior. And they, uh, he wants to know if this is actually the case. So he asked them, is it true? Are you refusing to bow down to this idol? And they look at him and they say, yes, it's true. We're not going to kiss that golden idol. That's what they say to him. We will not do it. And he gives them one more chance and plays the music and shoots off the confetti and uh, everyone bows down. But these three guys are left standing there. They're not playing along. They said this to the king, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the, even if we are thrown into the burning fire, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So they were confronted with this obvious situation. Here's an idol. I'm ordering you to bow down and worship it, and they say, not going to do it. And I wonder how it is that they make that bold choice. And if they make that choice in that case, can we maybe learn to make the choice in the lesser cases or maybe the more subtle cases of having to do with idols? And I'd I'd like to suggest this morning that it has something to do with how we perceive treasure. These men treasured something more than they treasured the approval of the king. These men treasured something more than they treasured their personal safety. They treasured something more than they treasured going along with everybody else. They treasured something more than they treasured their very lives. For in some way, they had centered their treasure, and it was God. And because of that, they're like, okay, even if you throw us in the blazing furnace, you know, our God is with us. He's our treasure, and they're making this very clear. Now, if someone places a golden idol or a silver football in front of us, I think we're, you know, astute enough to go, well, we're not going to fall for that. That looks like an idol. I'm not going to kiss it. But most of our idols kind of sneak in. And this is the question that I was coming to as I was immersing myself in this passage for this week, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And even though the word idol is not mentioned in the text that we just read, Uh, It seems to me clear uh, that Jesus is talking about the impact that treasure has on our hearts, how our hearts get shaped and molded, and how easily a treasure can become an idol, whether we kiss it or not. And it makes me wonder about myself. What kind of um, treasures does my heart desire? What treasures pull at my heart or tug at my heart? 
What kind of treasures have the potential for becoming idols? Those are the questions that I wonder. And you know, there's a famous quotation from the theologian John Calvin on this. He says, don't take this too lightly. Don't underestimate the power of these treasures because he says that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. That means our hearts are continually creating, manufacturing, making idols, and they're pulling us away. And this is how the Bible talks about it. It says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be. That's our key verse for today from Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And I remember as a kid growing up with this verse backwards. I thought that the verse actually said, where your heart is, well, that's where your treasure is going to be. But that's backwards. That's not how Jesus says it. Jesus says it this way. He says that treasure's first, then your heart follows. Treasure shapes our heart. The things we treasure, they pull, they tug at our heart. Treasure moves our heart. It can move our heart from good to bad, not the other way around. So be careful, he says, about where your treasure is because that treasure has a powerful effect. It can overpower your heart. And actually, this is the same way that James talks about it. If you're reading in James chapter 1, he's actually talking about temptation. But there's a really, I think, important parallel between temptation and treasures and idol making. And James talks about this. He says, you know, when we see something, even something that's good for us, we see stuff that's good like to be loved, to be accepted, to be valued, to belong. These are all good things. Our hearts want that. Our hearts actually need that. That's how we're wired. Or maybe there's things that maybe aren't obviously bad, you know, possessions or wealth or success or recognition. These things aren't obviously bad. We're not even talking about big golden statues that we're bowing down to. We're talking about good stuff or maybe neutral stuff in our life that our heart is attracted to it. Our heart is drawn to that. We start to want it. And then James says there's this little thing that happens to us. These good things that we long for, these things then, they drag us away. That's the language he uses. They drag us away and they entice us. And then the consequence after our hearts have been drugged away or enticed by some good thing, some treasure that's out there, the, the consequence of getting dragged away and enticed, you know what's next? Destruction. So they look so good. They look like they're going to be so valuable and so important and we need them so bad. We've got to have that thing. And it drags us away, it entices us, and then it's our undoing. It destroys us. The treasure becomes our ultimate pursuit. The treasure becomes the utmost desire of our hearts. The treasure becomes the most important thing. The treasure becomes an idol. That's how it works. That's how our hearts are wired. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's how Jesus described it. One of the things that I love about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus He doesn't waste our time talking about trivial little things that are kind of like on the side issues. He goes right to the heart of the matter. And in this little paragraph, Jesus is going right to the heart of the matter of what is ultimately shaping us. What are those things that drive us, that give us purpose, that give us meaning, that guide our lives? He says, what are those things that your heart desires above all things? This is not some little side conversation that you have. This is a key conversation. And Jesus does this, remember, because his overall theme throughout this whole sermon has been, you know what? I want you to imagine God's kingdom coming. 
I want you to see and hear and, and feel and touch and taste God's dream for all of people. And when you can start to imagine God's dream, what God desires for all of us, then that will shape our hearts and move us toward that dream. I think that's the whole purpose of this entire Sermon on the Mount, to move us closer and closer to see the dream that God has for us in the same way that God sees it. This is the, the subject matter of the entire sermon. God's kingdom looks like this, and don't you want that, really? Wouldn't you like to experience God's kingdom and be part of God's kingdom and see that come in all of its fullness? This is what Jesus is offering to us. But then he keeps bringing it down to this. He says, well, but you know what? You're, you have a choice. And throughout the whole thing, he does lots of comparison. You know, well, you've heard it this way, but I say it's like this. And now in this passage, he says, well, you know what? You can store up treasures for yourself on earth if you want. That's an option. Store up treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Option one. Or option two, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. What you're going to choose? And I think it comes down to what's your dream? Do we have a dream that kind of moves toward imagining God's kingdom coming in all of its fullness? And wouldn't we want to be part of that? Is that the dream or, or not? Do we dream about earthly treasure that is passing and temporary? The kind of treasure that, you know, rots and it becomes outdated and you need to get an upgrade and the kind of treasure that ends up in the landfill or the kind of treasure that's temporary or passing or fleeting, fickle treasure? Is that what we desire? Is that our deepest dream? Is that our life's purpose? Is that why we're here? To amass these temporary treasures? That's one option. Or, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where things are lasting and eternal, where things are not corroded and rusted and destroyed and stolen. What's your choice? Jesus goes on, I think, to elaborate on our understanding of what these choices imply. That's the next little paragraph. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. You know, this is where our enticement begins, right? Most treasures start with our eyes. Like, we see something, go, I got to have that. Yeah, that's, you know, the little bright, shiny bauble. Ah, that's something I got to have. I see this thing. And this is the gate to our heart, he says, so again, do we want our eyes to be turned toward earthly treasures and go, oh, there's something that looks nice for now. I'll just go grab that. And it becomes a treasure. But he goes on to say this is tricky business because it looks like it's light. It looks like it's good for us. It looks like it might be bring life, at least when it's shining off in the distance and we're pursuing it. It looks like it might be a good thing. But he says it brings darkness, which kind of, I think, talks about the tricky business of treasures and how we navigate treasure. Um, there's another whole book written about this that I'd recommend to you. The, the title of this book is Ecclesiastes. And if you want to read this book, it's 12 chapters of uh, the wisest guy who ever lived. And he's going through this little kind of survey of what treasures should I seek next? He says, I'll try this. I'll try pleasure and see if that's a treasure that's fulfilling. I'm going to try to amass wealth. I'm going to try to work really hard and achieve great things. I'm going to try to become famous and get recognition. He tries one thing after another, and these treasures all look good to him when he starts. He's like, oh, there's, there's something I see that looks good. I'm going to go after that. And then after he goes through this whole experiment of looking for uh, all, every indulgence that his mind can think, and he could think of a lot of things, he comes to this conclusion about these 
treasures and their ability to bring satisfaction and meaning and purpose. He says this. This is his final conclusion, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8. Some of you know what it says, right? Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. That's what he says about these earthly treasures. Everything under the sun, in his language, meaningless. While you have an option to pursue them if you want, he says they're meaningless, which is kind of the ultimate value of all these earthly treasures. In fact, he uses that same word 33 times in 12 chapters, a kind of a checklist. Treasuring wealth and possessions, meaningless. Treasuring pleasure, meaningless. Treasuring power and influence over others, treasuring the approval of others, treasuring control over your life, treasuring safety and security, treasuring your ability to work hard and get things done, treasuring recognition or fame or success, treasuring your good looks, your good deeds, your good fortune, your good accomplishments, all these things, meaningless. That's what he says. Kissing idols, he would say, meaningless. There's also a fascinating description. The Bible actually has a lot to say about idols, which makes me think this is really a key subject for us to pay attention to. And the subtle kind of power of influence they have over us, I think, is important. Isaiah chapter 44 talks about kind of an understanding of why these things are so meaningless. And I'd actually use a different word. I'd use the word ridiculous. Listen to this description and see how we arrive at our idol-making. Isaiah 44. The carpenter measures with a line and marks an outline... And then he roughs it out with a chisel, and then he marks it with compasses, and he shapes it in human form, human form in all of its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. You see what he's done there? He's just carved an idol out of a piece of wood. He cut down cedars, perhaps took a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or he planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. And then he uses this for fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire over which he prepares his meal and roasts his meat and eats his fill and warms himself and says, ah, I have a nice life. And the other half he bows down and he worships it. How is that for an idol? Ridiculous. Half of the tree I make and burn and half of the tree I make into an idol and then I kiss it. This is how we make idols, after all, you know. We decide what is valuable. We decide what is important. We decide what it is we want. And then we go hard after it. We pursue it with our whole heart. And then when we have it, we go, I've got my treasure. Two words. It's either meaningless or ridiculous. You can pick. Or I would say dumb, but the kids in my Sunday school class are saying I shouldn't say dumb anymore. So Jesus gives us this warning. You can't serve two masters. Either you're going to hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't. People tried. God's people tried throughout history, and there's a lot more that the Bible has to say about this. But uh, after they crafted their idols, basically what happened was the, the idols destroyed them. But even in the case of the most extreme idolatry, God offers an alternate vision. What if you worshipped the the one treasure that was worthy of worship, the one treasure that was above all, the one treasure that was not meaningless? He gives a picture to his people. This is in Isaiah. So after he's talked to them about idols, he gives them this great picture of what God offers, an alternate vision. 
The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. They will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. Feeble hands will be strengthened, weak knees steadied. Say to those who have fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with a vengeance and he will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The mute will sing with joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground a bubbling spring. In the haunts where the jackals once lay, grass and reeds will grow, and a highway will be there. It's called the way of holiness, and all those who follow me will walk on it. And no lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. There will not be found there, but they will be redeemed as they walk on this way. And those the Lord has rescued will return. And they will enter Zion with singing, and everlasting joy will crown their heads, and gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will be taken away. So, option one, earthly treasures, rust, moths, thieves, meaningless, ridiculous, dumb idols. Or option two, water in the desert, sight for the blind, the lame leaping and dancing, singing for joy, no more sighing, the glory of the Lord. You get to pick option one or option two. And just in case you are not yet convinced which option you think are best, This sermon is only part one. You can come back next week and hear part two, and then I think you'll be convinced. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to come to you, and I want to thank you for your love for us, for the opportunity that we have to celebrate in that great gift of your love, for this treasure that is beyond priceless, beyond the value of silver and gold and diamonds and any treasure that we could imagine, the treasure of your love for us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.